Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today, in a stunning move on International Women's Day, all 28 members of the team filed a gender discrimination lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation. And welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Kristen. I'm Caroline. And that was the sound of soccer's equal pay chants heard around the world when the U.S. women's national team won the Women's World Cup in July. Fourth time, the United States of America are crowned champions of the world. And for the very first time, they've done it on European soil. It is finished at the Stade de Lyon. Caroline, I grew up in a soccer family. Uh, My brother is a FIFA referee, no big deal. And it was electrifying to watch Megan Rapinoe, Alex Morgan, Rose Lavelle, and the rest of the team not simply win, but win with so much pressure on to prove their worth on the field. Yes, because off the field... The U.S. women's national team was, and still is, suing their very powerful employer. Yeah, they've been busy. Yeah, okay, so to recap, on March 8th, the U.S. women's national team announced they're suing the U.S. Soccer Federation, a.k.a. U.S. Soccer, because, and we are quoting from the lawsuit, the female players have been consistently paid less money than their male counterparts, and U.S. Soccer has stubbornly refused to treat its female employees equally to its male employees, End quote. Shots fired. I know, right? And U.S. soccer fired right back in their legal response to the lawsuit. Quote, ladies, ladies, ladies. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, Quote, the U.S. women's national team and the U.S. men's national team receive fundamentally different pay structures for performing different work under their separate collective bargaining agreements that require different obligations and responsibilities. In other words, the women's team is saying, hey, we deserve the same pay and treatment as the men's national team. And U.S. soccer is saying, no, this isn't gender discrimination. The men's and women's national teams are just different. Mm. Okay, okay. So, Caroline, the lawsuit dropped in March. The women bagged their World Cup in July. What has happened since? More drama! 
The women's team in U.S. soccer initially tried to settle their differences outside of court through mediation, but the talks failed. And as of this recording, a trial is set for May 2020. Set your Google Cal reminders, people. That's right. In the meantime, the women's team is just now wrapping up their post-World Cup victory tour. And to celebrate, (laughs) we're going to unpack all the claptrap of women's soccer's equal pay problem. Yes. And I have been so pumped to talk about this because, Caroline, these MVPs, they are not just phenomenal athletes and Instagram goddesses. Like once I started taking a closer look at the lawsuit and the steps the players had to take just to bring it, I had a very stars, they're just like us kind of (laughs) moment because best in the world soccer playing aside – The women's team members are also female employees in a male-dominated workplace navigating very familiar-sounding institutional sexism. Exactly. So today, we're exploring the sexist double standards that led to the lawsuit, why U.S. soccer says the women's team doth protest too much, and how the law allows employers to essentially gaslight their way out of closing gender wage gaps. Now, to wrap our heads around all this stuff, no, we did not talk to Megan Rapino herself, but we did talk to a reporter who's talked to Megan Rapino and a bunch of other women's soccer A-listers, too. Plus, we've got a legal translator on deck from the National Women's Law Center to help us understand what's at stake in this case and how U.S. soccer is defending itself. It's all to find out what is the U.S. women's national team fighting for and what does equal pay for equal work really mean? Okay, pop quiz. How many full-time soccer reporters are there in the U.S.? Ooh, just in terms of overall soccer or women's soccer or... Women's soccer. Okay. And this is... This is- this is kind of a trick question. I know, it's one. Because it's me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's Meg Linehan. And yes, she's America's one and only full-time women's soccer reporter. She writes for The Athletic and The Atlantic, where she covers the U.S. Women's National Team and the National Women's Soccer League. In other words, Meg knows all the dirt about how the big soccer machine works. And this summer, she had a front-row seat to the World Cup action in Paris, as well as the frenemy ship between the U.S. women's national team and U.S. soccer that was on full display stateside in July during the team's victory parade. I remember being at City Hall, like, U.S. women's national team has just gone through the Canyon of Heroes, down the streets of New York City, ticker tape parade, you name it. They're... Like, Bill de Blasio is starting equal pay chance himself during the actual, like, event. And then a guy named Carlos Cordero rolls up to the mic in a suit and tie and looking visibly uncomfortable. Or maybe, Caroline, it was just that the women's team looked so fucking cool (laughs) up on stage behind him in their sunglasses and matching t-shirts. I don't know. But anyway, Cordero is the president of U.S. Soccer. As in the very employer that the players are suing for gender discrimination. And I remember turning to a photographer next to me and just being like, he could end this right now and look like a hero. And everything would be forgotten. The team would forget it because you could actually work together to, like, build and grow women's soccer. All he has to say is, we have heard you and we will make it work. He doesn't even have to say anything specific. And it's not, it's not what happened. And instead, they're digging their heels in, and it's still, like, no one really understands why. 
Right. So at that parade, Cordero starts to give this very, like, PR-friendly speech about how proud U.S. soccer is of the women's team, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, Today, on behalf of U.S. soccer, I want to say we hear you, we believe in you, and we're committed to doing right by you. Sounding good so far. Yeah, but then Cordero just totally sidesteps. And that is why, that is why, over the years... U.S. soccer has invested more in women's soccer than any country in the world. And we will, and we will continue to invest. And the primary defense that U.S. soccer continues to dig in its heels on is what Cordero pivoted to in that speech. That since U.S. soccer invests more in women's soccer than any other country in the world, like, that should be enough. Which totally dismisses the equal pay and treatment within the U.S. soccer organization that the women's team is demanding. Okay, so how did we get here? (laughs) Well, even though the equal pay fight has reached a fever pitch now, Meg says that tensions between the U.S. women's national team and U.S. soccer have been growing for the past 20 years. Yeah, our story really starts around the same time Meg fell in love with soccer herself. The 99 World Cup was like the moment. Fans packed into sold-out stadiums to watch that Women's World Cup. And the final match was U.S. versus China. Neither team scores, and the game goes into overtime, then into penalty kicks. And the entire thing comes down to one final kick. And Brandy Chastain is up. Chastain collapses to the ground, rips off her jersey in excitement, and everyone is like, oh my god, we've never seen a woman strip down to her sports bra like that, wow, wow, wow! And that kick, that entire World Cup series, really put women's soccer on the map and turned the players and Brandy Chastain's sports bra into bona fide celebrities. That's right, and Meg summed up the history of women's pro soccer in the U.S. as up and down. And 1999 was a major wave that also brought the first women's professional soccer league, the WUSA. But it only survived three years. Yeah, like many pro-women sports, Meg says soccer has struggled to maintain fan and financial momentum in between, like, big World Cup wins, of which they now have four, on top of winning four Olympic gold medals and, you know, remaining the number one women's soccer team in the world for 10 out of the last 11 years. No big deal. Even more importantly, though, the players have struggled just to get paid a living wage. Yeah. In the wake of that 1999 World Cup win, for instance, the team threatened to boycott the 2000 Olympics after U.S. soccer only offered them short-term contracts worth less than $7,000 per player. In the first wave in 99, like, they really had to fight. And I don't think that equal pay was even on the table for them back then. It was simply like a matter of like, A, getting paid and getting the support that the team needed. So it hasn't been like a super loud issue until, you know, the last basically three or four years over this past cycle. But pretty much every single version of this team has definitely tried to fight for more, whether it's payment, um, better treatment, you name it, from the Federation itself. Oh, and here's some sports trivia, Caroline. To get an idea of just how much the U.S. women's national team has had to fight for, 
any payment for the first five years of its existence leading up to the first ever Women's World Cup in 1991. The only money those early players like Mia Hamm earned was a $10 per diem while traveling. Uh, that's, like, not enough to buy, like, a sandwich. I, like, don't even know how you're supposed to live on that. I know. Now, as for our current lawsuit, things really got rolling in April 2016. That's when five players, Hope Solo, Carly Lloyd, Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino, and Becky Sauerbrunn, filed a wage discrimination complaint against U.S. soccer with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. they just come off another World Cup win and were like, hey, will you pay us enough already? <laughs> Then this February, the EEOC said, sure, you know, we can't settle this ourselves. Y'all have the green light to sue. That brings us to March, when all 28 team members filed a gender discrimination lawsuit under the Equal Pay Act and Title VII. So the U.S. women's national team is effectively suing its employer because U.S. soccer runs the women's national team in every way, really, from hiring, training, promoting and paying the team to scheduling games and setting ticket prices. Like U.S. soccer calls pretty much all of the shots. In the team's argument against U.S. soccer, they say, listen, we play better and more often, but for less pay and under less favorable conditions than the men. And we're going to dig more into what they mean by those less favorable conditions a little later. The important thing to know now is that the players' lawsuit is taking a two-pronged approach, unequal pay and unequal treatment. Right. So first, let's wrap our heads around the equal pay side of their allegations. So as far as determining the, the wage gap for the current lawsuit, it seems like it should be straightforward. Like, the men's and women's teams are playing the exact same game and are expected to perform the same athletic duties, so they should be paid the same, right? Uh, U.S. soccer says, you're wrong, Kristen. <laughs> and actually, they argue the exact opposite. Yes, I just well actually lead you on behalf of U.S. soccer. Hey, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> they're saying it's impossible to compare the men's and women's teams because they're totally separate units. Honestly, like reading the the Federation's response to the lawsuit, is it just it, it reads like a masterclass in gaslighting. <laughs> Because, I mean, it, it literally states, like, there are no male counterparts right. to the women's national players. And I'm just going to read you another quote uh, and just get your hot take on this. <laughs> um, so in their response, they state, quote, the teams face different quantities and qualities of international competition and no comparison can be made between their respective performance and compensation in such vastly different spheres. Which to me just sounds like U.S. soccer being kind of shady. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they're getting punished for being so good. Right? Like, they're saying, like, oh, the men have to play these really tough opponents. Like, it's so hard for them. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, they have to fight for every single thing. Like, it's such a huge deal. And then for the women, again, like, it really is this sort of sense of because of the success of the women's national team, we can't even compare you to the men. But, I mean, you just fundamentally look at it and it's like, are you playing soccer for U.S. soccer? Okay. You're doing the same job. Done. And then you look at the men's national team, and they are not that good. <laughs> and they didn't even qualify for the 2018 World Cup. But as far as how U.S. soccer compensates each team, you'd almost think the women were playing an entirely different sport. The men's national team, the women's national team are both 
essentially under the same umbrella of U.S. soccer, but the men's contracts are arranged differently, like they have a completely different payment structure than the women. Okay, y'all. Now, this is where the whole pay discrimination issue gets a lot more complicated than just chanting equal pay. (laughs) Right. Because, first of all, the men's and women's teams negotiate their respective, like, compensation packages from U.S. soccer through their own separate players' unions. And the exact details of those collective bargaining agreements are supposed to be kept confidential. Yep. The key thing to know, though, is that according to their current player union negotiations, the guys are only paid if they show up and play. And that's a pay-for-play model. They get paid basically by appearance. So when they actually get called into the national team, they get a fee. When they play a game, they get a fee. If they win, they get a match bonus. Like, that's how they get paid. The women, meanwhile, earn a flat base salary and also receive benefits like health care, maternity leave, and adoption benefits. Because each team is operating under a different pay model, it is super hard to put an exact price tag on the actual pay gap. But the Washington Post crunched some numbers based on the players' current union contracts, and they calculated that a woman's team player earns about 11% less than a men's player at the same level. So this is where a lot of the tension has been when you get into these conversations of equal pay, because right at the moment, you can't really actually say, like, we would like equal pay because the structure is so different. And in theory, the women have asked for that same structure. Like, they've been willing to say, okay, we would like to get paid like the men, and we're going to give up some of this security that we have because, in theory, if you were a top player, you could make a lot of money that way. And Caroline, here's where things get even more twisted with how U.S. soccer is defending itself. So they're basically claiming that since women earn that base salary while men are pay for play, U.S. soccer is all like, the women are getting paid more, y'all, which is super misleading. Yeah, it is, because it doesn't take into account that men earn so much more from game bonuses, their major league soccer teams, and World Cup appearances. The men are rewarded when they play like these top teams and they win because it's a huge upset for them. And it's a a point of growth in their actual like talent development. The women, on the other hand, are just kind of maintaining and and protecting their legacy. And they are almost actually punished for being so good simply because there is no like higher ceiling for them to climb. Like, yes, they can continue to beat top teams, but They don't have to, like, fight to prove their worth. They have already proven it. Yeah, the men's national team players actually earn $5,000 bonuses from U.S. soccer if they lose friendly matches. Yeah, meanwhile, because the women win so much, they then end up playing more games as they advance. And that's not just counting the World Cup victory matches. According to the team's lawsuit from 2015 to 2018, the women's national team played 19 more games than the men's team over that same period. Equal pay for more work just does not have the same <laughs> ring to it, Caroline. Uh, no, it does not. Uh, this ongoing fight for equal pay and treatment also highlights this double standard that female pro players are side-eyed for demanding more money instead of just doing it for the love of the game. <laughs> At least they're earning more than their $10 per diem. Mm, yeah. you know, or, as U.S. soccer president Carlos Cordero might argue, since the U.S. women's national team is funded better than women's teams in in other countries, then that should be enough, ladies. 
when we talk about women athletes, we expect them to be like these happy little role models, right? And it does not fit in our like general societal expectations of women athletes, which is like role model first. They play for the love of the game. They don't play to get paid. Like all of this sort of like gross patriarchy stuff that's kind of baked into women's sports at this point in time. Yeah. How much is that concept sort of muddying the waters around the lawsuit, like, and the perception of the players who are asking for equal pay. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a huge part of it. I mean, we've even seen some coaches in the, in NWSL get kind of in the hot water where they're like, there's one guy who coaches in Orlando and he was basically like, well, these women, like, it's so pure. Like, there's this purity aspect. (laughs) Yeah. And everyone is immediately like, what are you talking about? Like, please don't. And so, like, he's had to walk it back and he's like, oh, of course I believe that the women should get paid equally. But there is this sort of concept of, okay, well, men's soccer is this huge booming business, but also, like, women are so pure because there's not a lot of money in it and – there's this expectation, like, even for the U.S. national team, that they're going to be out on the field signing autographs for, like, an hour after the game because they have to grow this fan base still. So there's such a larger conversation in terms of what we expect out of female athletes and and the way that general society, like, kind of looks at them and has different expectations of, yes, like, you should be doing it for the purity of the game because that's all there is to it. Like, it's this nice special little thing that hasn't been tainted by money yet and the players are like okay cool like i can't pay my bills with the purity of the game god Kristen, if only we could pay our bills with dreams seriously (laughs) but how does the actual law interpret this equal pay for equal work conundrum like is u.s soccer really wage discriminating here or are they just running a business After the break, we'll get into all of that, as well as the team's unequal treatment allegations and the legalities of why equal pay isn't just about the money, honey. Stick around. just about pay equity for you guys. Megan, what other inequities are you talking about? In order to have, I think, a fair and a balanced conversation around compensation, we need to look at everything. We need to look at the way the youth teams are funded. We need to look at the way our staff, our coaching staff, our medical staff is funded. We need to look at promotion and branding and marketing and sponsorship, all of that. We're back decoding the ins and outs of the U.S. Women's National Team's lawsuit and that was Megan, we're not going to the fucking White House Rapino on Good Morning America. Okay, so Kristen, we covered a lot of the equal pay issues at the top of the episode, but as Rapino explained, this case isn't just about all the cash monies. Right, because their lawsuit also alleges unequal treatment under Title VII. Exactly. So, for example, the women are actually likelier to compete on literal uneven playing fields, AstroTurf specifically, compared to the men who get grass turf. So for grass, like, obviously that is the way soccer is intended to be played, is on grass. Turf does change the feel of the game. Like, the ball bounces differently. It's a much harder surface. It also retains heat in a completely different way. I have been on turf fields in the summer, and it feels like your feet are melting off of your body. Um, But also, I mean, there's the way that turf affects the game and affects players' health and can can really, like, 
I mean, you get non-contact injuries where it's not even, it's just like a player trying to run on that surface and something goes wrong. It's a much higher rate than if you're playing on grass. According to the lawsuit, between 2014 and 2017, the women played 13 out of 62 domestic matches on artificial surfaces, whereas the men, they only played on artificial surfaces once. Just once. And U.S. soccer has literally rolled out the green carpet for the guys. They installed real grass over the artificial surface for eight games. And that includes three venues where the women had to play on the artificial turf. So how does U.S. soccer justify that? And, like, is what they're doing even legal? For those answers, we called in an unladylike legal expert, Maya Ragu. I am an attorney at the National Women's Law Center in Washington, D.C. I'm the director of workplace equality and senior counsel, which means that I get to work on issues like equal pay and sexual harassment and pregnancy discrimination. So you're busy. (laughs) (laughs) The last two years have been pretty busy, yeah. (laughs) Now, fun fact— The National Women's Law Center manages the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, which the U.S. Women's National Team now partners with, with the goal (laughs) of leveling all the paying fields. See what I did there? (laughs) I do. Legally speaking, are the men's and women's national team members performing equal work? So it's interesting because if you look at the common core of what they're doing, right, like what is actually required to do their job, there's a really good argument that they are, right? This is what they say in their lawsuit. They're playing the same game under the same rules. They do the same kinds of training. You know, they're playing in the same kinds of competitions. All of that should add up to equal work, What is interesting about, you know, the U.S. Soccer Federation's argument is that they're arguing, no, that they're actually very different jobs, that they're physically different in separate spaces, they have different playing surfaces, they compete in different competitions and venues and countries at different times, they have different coaches and staff and leadership, and they are saying all those kinds of details add up to... It's not equal work. It's different work. And it's kind of funny because I actually think that pinpointing all those differences helps make the argument that actually the women's team is being treated unequally. Those different layers of equal pay and equal treatment are really tricky, especially when you're dealing with an organization like U.S. Soccer, which, like plenty of other rich and powerful employers out there, keeps a lot of its compensation info close to the chest. So one language difference that has jumped out in reading both sides of the lawsuit is that you have the women's team calling for equal pay and the U.S. Soccer Federation responding that, oh, yeah, we do provide equitable and fair pay. So from your legal POV, What is the distinction between equal pay and equitable and fair pay? So 
equitable or fair pay means that you're being compensated fairly for the job based on your skills and ability and experience. Um, So it's sort of focused more on you as an individual and what you're bringing to the table. Equal pay, though, is sort of a bigger concept, and it's looking at sort of institutionally and structurally. Are you receiving equal compensation as compared to other groups of people that we're comparing you to? So to men or, you know, women of color as compared to men of color or to white men. So you're, you're trying to look at the equity within the company in determining whether people are being paid equally for equal work. All right. So if we look at their response to the players' lawsuit, U.S. Soccer says it's compensating the women's players equitably, quote, based on differences in the aggregate revenue generated by the different teams and or any other factor other than sex. Which, I mean, that's kind of a broad brush. A little bit. (laughs) And it's a line that jumped out to legal expert Maya, too. In their response, they're saying there's this legitimate business-related reason that's not based on sex for these disparities. And part of it is this idea that it's just a reflection of the market, right? And we see companies make this argument in other pay discrimination cases in the workplace context that, well, you know, if there is unequal pay between a man and a woman doing the same job, it's just a reflection of the market. And that's not based on sex. And that's out of our hands. So if this man was a better negotiator and we paid him more, well, that's not based on sex. And so some courts have accepted those arguments and some of them have not. And they've seen through them and they've said, look, the compensation, the market is a product of a historical context where women were paid less than men and their work was undervalued and devalued for many, many years simply because work done by women is not seen as important and as valuable. So you can't ignore that, especially in women's sports. You have to look at it in a historical context and see years and years in which, you know, women's sports were underfunded, weren't promoted as well, and women athletes were being paid much less than men. And Meg agrees. Yeah, I think fundamentally the biggest thing in terms of the development of women's soccer is just the investment. I mean, you look at the development of, so the men's professional league, major league soccer, it has had about, you know, 30 years to grow itself. So it's given, it's gotten a lot of time to actually build a fan base. We're only now starting to see like a generational turnover of like, okay, I grew up going to MLS games, so my kids are going to grow up going to MLS games. So I think the biggest challenge with the women's league is, is that there's somehow this immediate expectation that they have to make money as opposed to men's soccer, which is looked at as this investment of like, okay, we need to to put money in, to build it, and it's going to grow on its own. Whereas with women's sports, it's always just like, well, but the revenue. This expectation that they have to be producing revenue at all times in order for it to, like, make it be worth it for women's soccer to exist, whether it's at the pro level or the international level. 
Again, y'all, this lawsuit highlights how equal pay laws just are not as straightforward as they sound. That whole any factor other than sex defense allows employers to justify unequal compensation by attributing it to things like seniority, merit, and quality of work. In the case of U.S. soccer, though, like, I don't understand how this sink or swim attitude towards the women's team is productive, Kristen. Like, why wouldn't U.S. soccer want to invest more to grow them into a huge moneymaker? Like, it's like they're leaving money on the field. I see what you're doing there. (laughs) But the thing is, how much the U.S. women's national team is actually worth remains kind of a financial mystery. Yeah, after the break, we're going to look for revenue clues with reporter Meg. Grab your magnifying glasses and stick around. I mean, you look at the overall coverage rates of men's sports compared to women's sports. And I think, you know, we've gone from like 2.5% for women to like 4% of women's sports being part of the overall coverage. We're back with women's soccer reporter Meg Linehan. I think horses get more coverage than women's sports. (laughs) Now here on Unladylike, we are doing our part to keep the coverage equal, by the way. So there is going to be a Horse Girls episode later this season. Surprise! We aim to please, y'all. But let's get back to why U.S. soccer is so sketchy about how much the women's players are really worth compared to the guys. So why do you think, it's kind of the uh, $64,000 question, why do you think that they won't pay the women more? Why are they digging in their heels? Yeah, I mean, they really seem content to not care about the public opinion side of it. They are only looking at their books and saying, okay, but the the revenue, right? This is the the classic line, but the revenue means that the men should earn more money because they give us more money. Whereas if you look at it as a nonprofit <laughs> of, okay, we should do the right thing by our employees, I don't think it would hurt them. And in fact, it would be a, a public opinion win, but they're looking at it as, okay, but the men make us more money and thus should be paid more. The women don't make us as much money and thus should be paid in this fashion. But U.S. soccer's revenue argument is debatable. According to a Wall Street Journal report, between 2016 and 2018, the women's soccer games made more revenue than men's games during the same period. Roughly $900,000 more in revenue, to be precise. Nonetheless, U.S. soccer is still claiming that the men are bringing in more. So, all right, is this whole idea of marketplace worth just some sort of elusive (laughs) capitalist construct? The best part is, like, the longer I cover soccer, like, the more I hate capitalism. Like, it's just (laughs) slowly turning me into a much more radical human being. But, you know, I think that there there is truth to both sides in that the women have probably brought in more money overall. And then U.S. soccer is kind of looking at that and saying, okay, but if you look at revenue per game, right? So the men might play fewer games, but if you actually look at the revenue per game, that number is higher. But again, you have to kind of circle back around and saying, okay, but how are these two games being promoted side by side? Um, the infrastructure on both sides, is it equal? Does it does it mean that the women are in the best 
possible like marketplace situation to actually like sell out a stadium and things like that. And we're we're starting to see bigger numbers. They just got their largest attendance attendance number for a friendly like a standalone game in the United States ever in Philadelphia. So you're starting to see that, but then also ticket prices like the men's games like they've they've kind of built this strategy of we don't need as many people to come if we charge them a lot of lot of money to attend. So what are the biggest revenue streams for the women and as compared to the men too? Yeah, so here's the other struggle, the television rights which are fundamentally I think one of the largest sources of revenue are bundled with the men. So like Fox and ESPN, when they buy rights to games, they are buying rights to just U.S. soccer and not, okay, I only want to cover women's national team games. And that's the same as FIFA. The women's World Cup rights are bundled with the men's World Cup rights. So we have no idea what the actual value for a lot of like women's soccer stuff actually is because it's always just been kind of like tossed in with the men. Something we do know, the 2015 Women's World Cup Final versus Japan remains the most watched soccer game for men or women in American TV history. We also know Nike has sold more women's home jerseys than any other soccer jersey, men or women. All the other details about revenue and team value, though, not as easy to find. In the scope of the lawsuit, would those numbers become public information like as part of the discovery process yeah the players have been asking for those books to be open since day one of this but u.s uh soccer did ask for basically all of this like the facts and figures of the case to to never like be publicly viewable and i don't think that there's a final decision on that but u.s soccer is very determined to protect a lot of this information so the players might see it and it might become like part of the lawsuit itself, but I don't know how much of that is actually going to, like, trickle out into the real world that can be reported on by media. Yeah, those numbers going public would, A, finally get us some salary transparency in here, and B, help crystallize how women's work, in this case, soccer, is devalued, you know, considered secondary. And the pressure is on. Although U.S. soccer might be trying to stand their ground, the court of public opinion is clearly in favor of the women's team. Not to mention, the U.S. men's team is in support of them, too. The actual Players Association for the men's team has come out in full support. This is, this is more of the same from U.S. soccer, and we stand with the women. And even Congress is paying attention. There are currently bills proposed in the Senate and the House that would tie funding for the Men's World Cup in 2026, which is happening in the U.S., to equal pay for the women's teams. Some brands have also stepped in, giving money directly to players on the women's teams to close that wage gap. And soccer fans and teams around the world are watching how all this shakes out, too. The U.S. Women's National Team program is kind of like the gold standard across the globe, and I think... Even right now, just the lawsuit in general, like other countries are looking at them and saying if they aren't satisfied by what their federation has done for them and you look at our conditions, like, yes, we should be fighting the same way. And I I think that there are larger implications to the lawsuit than just U.S. Women's National Team versus U.S. Federation, that there will be, you know, a, a pathway then for other national teams to fight, whether it is a lawsuit or you know, just trying to negotiate a stronger contract for players. 
For our legal expert, Maya, the public groundswell of support for the U.S. women's national team gives them a lot of leverage and elevates the conversation to a larger stage. I think sort of one of the most important things about this lawsuit and about the players is how they are using this attention and their platform and their power to really drive bigger change, not just for themselves or for other female athletes, but for women across this country. I just, it's such an important lawsuit and an issue that they are bringing to light, I think. I hope it empowers people to look at their own workplaces and ask questions about what they're being paid, what their coworkers are being paid, and push their employers for, you know, greater transparency and less secrecy and more fairness, and that we continue to have this cultural conversation about How do we value women and the work that is done by women? You know, the law is important. And sometimes the law is ahead of culture and society, and it is driving change. And sometimes culture is ahead of the law, and it is driving change. That's what we're seeing in the sexual harassment context. And so I hope that that's what we can see here when it comes to equal pay, too. The law isn't enough. We need to change culture and the way that we do business if we are going to get to equal pay. All right, ladies, what do you think about the equal pay lawsuit? How do you think it's all going to play out? You can email us your thoughts at hello at unladylike.co or let us know on social at unladylikemedia. And you can also join our Facebook group and find the thread for this episode. We also have equal pay law resources from the National Women's Law Center in the episode post over at unladylike.co. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter to get a weekly update on good news about women in the world every Wednesday. And don't forget to subscribe to Unladylike in your favorite podcast app and tell at least three and a half friends about how much you love this podcast. Unladylike producers are Nora Ritchie and Sam Lee. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marade transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Daisy Rosario. Special thanks to Dan Bloom at Scripps DC. We're your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week... And then I get to this dark hole and I I squeeze through that opening and then boom, it opens up and it's like the size of an aircraft hangar. And the water is clear and untouched and obviously a place that nobody has ever been before. We're splashing into the deep with underwater cave diver Jill Heinerth to find out what exploring the unknown can teach us about facing down our fears. And in the meantime, remember... Got a problem? Get unladylike. Go! 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 <laughs> Stitcher. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find 10. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated it. this <gasps> guitar. 
I'm Asif Manvi and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.